1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Don McLeese about his book, Dwight Yoakam, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere, published in 2012 by the University of Texas Press. Though both artistically and commercially successful in his heyday of the late 1980s and 1990s, the story of Dwight Yoakam is one of an industry and community outsider. Though born in Kentucky and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Yokum cut his professional teeth in the punk and Americana roots scene in Los Angeles, playing gigs and hanging out with the Blasters, Los Lobos, and X. But Yokum wasn't like these artists. He was less a roots rocker and more a honky-tonker, preferring to play the Palomino over the Roxy. Commercial success came upon him not by making watered-down, radio-friendly country music, but through straightforward gut-bucket honky-tonk mixed with a bit of rock and roll to give it some kick. Importantly, Yocum had a vision. He knew what he wanted, both artistically and commercially, from the get-go. He enlisted guitarist-producer Pete Anderson, also a bit of a visionary, early on. Together, they not only produced some very fine records, but also put together a fierce live act that toured the world performing Yoakam's particular brand of fiery rock and country. MacLeese details Yoakam's music through the ages and his earliest demos to what, at the time, was his most recent release, Dwight Sings Buck. Along the way, he shows Yoakum to be a man of purpose, whether it be in making honky-tonk music, helping revive the career of Buck Owens, or acting. He also makes a strong argument for considering Yoakum to be among the best writers, performers, and recording artists of all time. Don McLeese lives in Des Moines, Iowa, which is where I reached him for this interview.
2: Hello, Don, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music.
0: Well,
2: thanks for having me. Hey, well, thanks for agreeing to do it. Um, why don't we just start with a, a little of your biography. Where, where do you come from, Don, and how did you get to where you are?
0: Uh, I come from the Chicago area, uh, the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, professionally, I was the pop music critic for the Chicago sun Times for 10 years. I subsequently moved to Austin, Texas, where I started out as a pop music critic and then ended up as a general columnist and critic at large. I was a senior editor at No Depression, uh, and I wrote a country column for Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I somehow slid from uh, journalism into academe. Uh, and I am currently a uh, professor, a journalism professor at the University of Iowa. But I'm based
2: in Des Moines. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And have you been able to, to mix the two, the, your, your journalism and your uh, teaching?
0: I would be. I would love to be able to do more of it. Uh, more of it being more journalism. Uh, the journalistic landscape has changed considerably uh, since I started teaching, and and it almost makes me look, you know, somewhat visionary. But I, I didn't jump into into teaching because I foresaw the collapse of a freelance market. It's like I. I jumped into teaching, and then there became fewer and fewer outlets for which to freelance. Uh, I, I always tell my students uh, there has never been a better time to get published. If By published, you mean getting your stuff for, you know, on the lab or whatever, and there's never been a tougher time to get paid for it.
2: Mm. Easier to get published because you can publish yourself. Well, you can publish paid.
0: yourself, and there's all sorts of places that are willing to, uh, you know, trade the publication for exposure. Uh,
3: uh-huh.
0: I, I'm at a I'm at a point in my career in my life where I really don't need any more exposure. Uh, uh-huh. and, and my bank
2: will take exposure, you know, in lieu of the mortgage payment. So, <laughs> so um, why why write this book? Why write a book about Dwight Yoakam? Uh, a number of reasons. Uh,
0: do you want to start with the, uh, idealistic reasons or the cynical reasons?
2: I want you to start wherever you'd like, Don.
0: Okay, well, the, professionally, it's, you know, the, those of us, there's a cliche in academe, publish or perish. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so my job requires me to publish things on a regular basis. Uh, and my, you know, No Depression, I don't know how much you know about No Depression magazine, but it, you know, it, I, I think it was a really terrific publication on alternative country or Americana or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it fell victim to the economics of the public, publishing industry, uh, morphed into what they called a bookazine in conjunction with the University of Texas Press. Mm-hmm. and so u t press was putting out uh, issues of what were essentially theme issues of no depression without advertising um uh, I think a quarterly or semi annual basis uh, mm-hmm. and then when that when that didn't seem to work out uh, they joined forces for a loop series. And, uh, and in the meantime, there ended up being some, uh, I don't know, some dissension over, you know, some calling out over the people who had once been part of No Depression. And, you know, so they no longer used the name uh, No Depression for the book series. But they were looking, you know, they asked me if I would be one of two authors to launch this book series for University of Texas Press. And I gave my editors and UT Press a a list of about six different artists who I would be willing to write a book on. And Dwight was the one that UT Press uh, just jumped all over. They really wanted a Dwight book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that kind of leads to the more idealistic reason. I mean, the professional is where I had to write a book, UT Press, wanted a Dwight book. Uh, the, the, the reasons why Dwight book are a great idea is that Dwight has a terrific story to tell. And, uh, if I didn't realize until I had already signed to, uh, to write the book, uh, it, it's been severely underreported. There, you know, there were no books on Dwight. Uh, and, and I think Dwight is just a far more significant figure than he has often been given credit for. So uh, so once I got into it, it, it made sense, you know, that Dwight was like a great book. Uh, originally, when I submitted my list, it was mainly, you know, out of expediency. Who can I write a book on who I've had plenty of contact with, with over the years, knowing that this was going to have to be a Quick turnaround, and I wasn't going to be able to spend years, uh, doing research with a large advance
3: subsidizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: were you a, are you, were you a fan of, of Yoakum's music coming into this? Oh, def- yeah, definitely, from the start. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. I mean, I, uh, the, as I recount in the book, uh, the first time I saw Dwight was when I was the pop music critic at the, chicago sometimes and dwight was uh touring uh, in conjunction with the major label release of his uh first uh, you know the ep that had been expanded into a warner brothers lp mm-hmm. and i saw him at the vic which is a north side converted theater but that didn't at that time, uh generally have country music and you know, it was to me it was as exciting as any punk rock show I'd ever been to. I almost felt like I was back in the days of the real blood and guts honky tonks. So I, I felt like there should have been chicken wire in front of the stage for people, you know, throwing beer bottles or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked Dwight's music on you know on the recordings I'd heard because I. Um, you know, I, I, I like traditional country music. I like it more now than I did then. Uh, I, uh, I thought he sounded a little mannered. You know, it's, it just seemed kind of retro revivalist, uh, on album. Uh, and then, you know, when I saw him, it's just like everything really kicked in. I just, uh, you know, I, I became an instant convert. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I subsequently had the chance to do a a long interview with, like, maybe, you know, another year or two down the road, and was just really impressed by how uh, perceptive he was and how honest he was. and also what a world-class talker he was. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think I brought three or four tapes, and I think we ran out of tape even then. I mean, he just and Dwight's, Dwight's sentences go on for what would be pages, you know, and <laughs> many different tangents uh, simultaneously, but, but he's a really bright guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was also just fascinated at that point by all the contradictions. I mean, you've got this, this you know, honky tonk throwback who's making his living on barroom songs, drinking songs, cheating songs, uh, and he's you know, he was raised a fundamentalist Christian. Uh he's you know, he's still to the best of my knowledge, has never had a drink, doesn't do drugs. Uh, you know, I mean he's he's kind of uh he's kind of Puritan for that for that kind of of music. Um and uh and plus the fact that you know his onstage persona is this this man of mystery who's, you know, the, the brooding cowboy who's tight-lipped and doesn't say more than necessary and there's a quality you know, there's that quality in his music very calm mm-hmm. and cursed. Uh, Whereas, uh you know, talking to me, I'm using this chatterbox, and you can't kiss me out, But uh, and I mean that in the nicest possible way.
3: Yeah,
0: uh, so, 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 in any event, uh, you know, I started out being interested in Dwight because of his tradition, because he had come from. The L.A. punk rock movement, this seemed to me a monumental leap to be able to go from, you know, playing for fans of X and the Blasters to, you know, being on mainstream country radio. Uh, you know, country, the country music industry is kind of a closed shop. And unless you go through the Nashville pipeline and, you know, the major labels are there, uh, you don't have much of a shot. Uh, Dwight somehow circumvented that uh Dwight somehow retained his credibility with uh rock fans, uh alternative rock fans, uh while having huge country hits. I mean so so Dwight was doing a lot of things but uh, that nobody else had done and nobody has gone on the scale that Dwight has. Uh consequently after <laughs> excuse me, after I had uh, assigned to the the book I kind of figured well you know i'll I'll start just doing the research, and I discovered there really wasn't much up there. i mean I, you know it, it seems like like anybody who's there hit record has at least a quickie fan biography that's been issued but uh, but nothing on white like, so so the field was wide open
2: so is it part of his story I think that you're the first to write a biography of him. Why? Uh, do you have any any thoughts about why nobody's written about him thus far until you?
0: I I'm really not sure to tell you the truth. Uh, my my suspicion is that by the time. Uh, by the time it became obvious, what Dwight had accomplished this you know, things were kind of falling apart with his career, which is another fascinating part of the story, because mm-hmm. there was no plan on my part to have my book coincide with his career resurrection, which is really what's happened with like. Dwight. So so maybe the time had come and gone, but no, I, I don't understand.
3: Uh,
0: I uh, You know, maybe people... Thought that they had trouble getting access. I didn't know that I'd have any access when I when I went at it. I think I think maybe it has something to do with timing. I think that there is more of a trend toward books on popular music within the last decade than there was during um, you know the time the time that light was at his popular peak. Uh, you know, the fact that there's maybe half a dozen books on, on Grant Parsons, whose life was short, <laughs> uh, and whose influence was, you know, paramount, but whose accomplishment was negligible compared mm-hmm. to Dwight's, uh, you know, and there was nothing on Dwight was, uh, you know, was, was really surprising to me. I was particularly surprised when I went through the archives of No Depression, because to me, Dwight is one of these seminal figures and that you know i mean the way i define that kind of music is you know country roots and rock attitude
3: and
0: uh-huh. white embodies that more than uh just about anybody i know so you I, know,
2: there was nothing there and, and and so you say like in no, no depression they never even wrote about it. And what i what i'm thinking is that uh and and you mentioned this a few times in this book this uh, this thing Dwight had in people's perception of authenticity and that Dwight is very obviously a, a showman I mean he, he you know he dresses up and he you know most of these no depression people are you know they're, they're they're like grungy looking guys right they they don't dress up and maybe that kept them away from drug Dwight
0: well I I think that might be true uh, yeah actually if there had been a book on Dwight I don't think it would have been aimed at the off
2: country crowd
0: I would have I think that it would have been more aimed at the commercial countries uh, you know mm-hmm. those fans uh, um, Yeah, Dwight's a little younger than I am, but both he and I came of age, musical age, during the era of AM radio, when a lot of things were, you know, mixed together, crossing boundaries, and where a lot of stuff that was the best regarded music was also the most popular music. I mean, so it's like we're in an era of hits. You know, it was just, Mm -hmm. I mean, Hank Williams had hits. George Jones had hits. Buck Owens had hits on the same radio stations as the Beatles. I never, you know, I never thought of, when I was growing up, uh, Buck Owens or Marty Robbins or Johnny Cash as being, you know, of a different musical genre than, uh, you know, than anybody else I was hearing on AM radio. I never knew that something like country existed. Uh, as far as authenticity goes, I think there's a couple things going on there. One is that Dwight, Dwight's show is perceived as very sensual and very appealing to women. Uh, and I think that male rock critics have trouble taking seriously things that appeal primarily to women uh now, just that uh, Justin Timberlake was considered a joke as long as his fan base was all women. And it was only when he started being legitimized by collaborating with other respected male artists that male rock critics started taking Justin Timberlake seriously um mm-hmm. I think if, you know, I think if you look at the template that a lot of what White did is very similar to what Elvis did. I mean, Elvis had the huge female following. He drove him crazy. He dressed up, you know. Mm -hmm. If he was authentic, I don't know authentic to what. You know, there weren't many uh, truck-driving mama's boys in in Tennessee who moved or looked like Elvis, so so whatever... Whatever Dwight's sins are uh, against authenticity. As I point out in the book, you know, Hank Williams came from a part of the country where nobody wore cowboy hats. Hank Williams wore a cowboy hat. You know, I mean show business is putting on a show. Uh and and Dwight's heroes have always been people who did that. So So Dwight makes no apologies from the start about wanting to have hit records and wanting to appeal to the widest possible audience. Mm -hmm. What's amazing is that he didn't compromise his music in order to do that. Uh, I mean, it it wasn't like anybody was saying, well, if you... If if you would just, you know, sound this way or work with these writers or have this producer or dress like this, we can make you into a big star, which is typically the way Nashville approaches anybody. In White's case he did it, you know, all on his well, on his own with Pete Anderson, uh, you know, however many thousands of miles away from Nashville and uh and it was so good that uh, that he made it through. But now I'm starting to be like, right? I'm just I'm talking nonstop. But, uh, yep. you, you are absolutely right in that uh, the punk rock side, the roots rock side, there is a real uh, suspicion of popular success of selling out of in- inauthenticity,
2: whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And so i up from that. Um, a couple times in your book you emphasize that this is a musical biography. What do you mean by that?
0: I knew going, well, I didn't even know, know going into it whether I was going to uh, have access to Dwight. So there were, there were a few, I didn't want people perceiving this book as something that it, that it wasn't. Uh, and being a more standard biography that would be longer. It would be exhaustive. that would you know have lots of interviews with people who grew up with light or you know his his sunday school teacher or his drama coach or whatever uh i had it was kind of a series but i had a fixed amount of space and i had a fixed amount of time um uh, and I knew what I could accomplish in that amount of time, and that was actually the the story that the series is designed to tell to to focus on the music or to focus on the musical development. So I really thought of this as like a biography of the music, and anything that didn't relate to the music uh, you know girlfriends that you know could gossip, whatever, you know I just it, it wasn't part of the book. So musical biography, t- yeah. I mean I I was tracing the development of the music in the same way that you trace the development of the life, of the, and obviously, you know, there's there are parallel tracks with the life and the music. Uh, I go into his movie career, but I go into acting mainly in the way that it affected his the development of his music and his
2: musical career. Okay then. Um uh, why don't you, let's talk about his musical biography a little bit, but it, it has to start with, as you say, there's the parallel between his life since he's making the music. Um, tell us a little bit about his early years growing up before he goes out to Los Angeles, please.
0: Well, Dwight has long made a, uh, yeah, I mean, the Kentucky side of his heritage is what he has steeped his persona in. But the fact is that Dwight grew up, I mean, from, I think, he ate too. I'd right have to go back to the book and look. But uh, from very young, he grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus is the largest city in the state of Ohio. Uh, a lot of people don't know that because I don't have major league teams. But uh, Columbus <laughs> is huge. It's got Ohio State, you know, I mean, it's, it's not Southern, uh, even in the way that Cincinnati is Southern. And so Dwight would make trips back to Kentucky to visit grandparents and relatives, but, uh, but he really grew up as a, as an Ohio City kid. Um, his, his parents listened to a lot of country music, but Dwight also listened to a lot of other stuff, you know, just Am radio, uh. Thoughts in the book about one, one of his, you know, one, one of his early musical successes was being able to mimic Rock On by David Essex, which was a very hippie sort of British uh, rock track from from that era. Uh, he, you know, he got he, he was he was more interested in drama in high school than he was in music. He was uh, his musical start was uh, you know forming a Sha Na Na type band uh, and actually when you know there's so so he has all of this Ohio in him uh, he wanted you know he wanted to get out of Ohio he wanted to be in show business uh, he spent uh, you know a semester at Ohio State the hometown university. Split for Nashville, uh, knowing some people through his church down there, Uh, and there's like this apocryphal story about Dwight, you know, making the pilgrimage to Nashville and Nashville spurning him, where the reality is that Nashville had no idea who Dwight was, nor should they have? I mean, Dwight at that point hadn't written any songs, he had no musical direction, uh, you know, he had an audition at Opryland. I mean, it wasn't like Dwight had anything to bring to Nashville. Um, and when he went out, you know, he, he subsequently, instead of going back to school, uh, he went out to, uh, to Los Angeles and the major reasons he went to Los Angeles, I mean, he went there kind of to follow the country rock. Uh, that, you know, he knew he could do Eagle songs. Uh, he was a big Emmyl Harris fan. Uh, he was a big uh, Biden's fan. Um, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Dwight went out to L.A. to pursue, uh, it was gone by the time he got there. Um and he, you know, he ended up as a short order cook uh, in Long Beach. He, uh, he did some community theater out there. Uh, and, you know, it took, Dw- Dwight's overnight success took him about 10 years from the time he went out to Los Angeles to when he got, uh, you know, really started to get build a buzz out there. So and then, so, you know that was with the pump rock scene you know which which Blade had no you know the pump rock scene you know I mean it, it wasn't like he was going out for the idea oh this is this is the master plan
2: you know it was a fluke. So he went out to L.A. for the same reason so many young people go out to L.A. I mean it was show business generally I mean he could have ended up being an actor for all he knew right. No.
0: Yeah true, and, and he says, you know, I mean, on the uh, in the book, he talks about how so many of his former influences were like watching cowboys on TV, and having this understanding that a lot of this cowboy ethos was the product of some soundstage in California, you know, was, and so what he, you know, he, he had these dual influences uh, cowboy shows and guitar heroes. So he, he wanted to be, you know, the, the cowboy with the guitar. And, uh, and, you know, yeah. so he went out there for the same reason a lot of other people and, mm-hmm. and with about as much chance. Uh, I mean, the way he tells it, he went out there because a friend of his, uh, was driving out there and I was like, you want to come? him? he nothing going on? And he said, sure. Uh, his friend
2: moved back uh six months later, and white stayed mhm so so um, talk a little bit then about that uh, uh i guess the punk rock scene he falls into I mean, it's not so much like the black flag type punk rock scene, although there is a mix of fans um there is more what you you call you know this this Americano with the blasters or los lobos.
0: Right, and, and there was an overlap in audience, and there was even an overlap in, in the bills they were sharing. Uh, you know, there's a, I mean, the, the Blasters and X, you know, had, had a lot in common, and actually, you know, Dave Alvin from the Blasters ended up filming X, uh, you know, for, for a brief spell. But, uh, I mean, I think with both bands, there was a real reverence for uh, for American musical roots uh, I think that throughout the punk scene there was this rejection of artifice and this the rejection of you know craft and polish that had kind of taken the place of passion and raw emotion and muscle and uh, and so as was like, you know, Dave Alvin from the Blasters was the big the early big champion of white. And uh and you know, he came upon them at the Palomino, which had once been early you know, early on it was the place where the mainstream country, you know, as opposed to the LA had hockey talk, kinda became kind of home base for the country rock people. And by the time White was out there? He was mainly being like a human jukebox, you know. Was doing three or four sets a night, you know. It was sometimes opening for other people, but uh kind of often just being there. And uh, you know, Dave Alvin saw him and just said, "Man, hey, this is the real deal." You know, this this is this is what country music is missing. Because you got to realize at that point, country music was was really lame, you know, it was it was even more uh soft rock than it is now. And it was urban cowboy and it was uh it had gone, you know, it had gone about as far towards suburbanization as you could get. Uh and here was a guy who talked like he was from Kentucky and, you know, who sang with a twang, and you know, who had a red hot band, and who was singing songs that sounded like they could have been hits, uh, you know, 20 years earlier, and, uh, and that fit right into what, what Alvin was doing with the Blasters, and, and the Blasters did that for a lot of acts, you know, the Blasters did the, the, did the same thing for Los Lobos, who wouldn't necessarily seem to fit within the, uh, you know the, the traditional punk aesthetic, but uh, but
2: they were you know were embraced as kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. You, you have a, a nice phrase in here talking about uh, what, where country music was and country rock. You you say there's this period post Burrito Brothers, pre Garth Brooks, where where country and country rock is, is well, you just called it lame. So I guess I'll use your term. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was a period when there really wasn't much uh, there wasn't much going on. It was very interesting. So, yeah, and, and what, what had going for him from the start was a really dynamic live performance, uh, and so. Even punk rock fans, you know, there, there was a comment about with the energy that, that Dwight was uh, projecting from the stage. And Dwight, of course, would feed off the energy from the crowd. So, it uh, you know, it, uh, it somehow worked fine, although it's hard for me from a distance to see how you know, anybody thought, you know, you were going to be able to get from, you know, the, the punk rock clubs of Los Angeles to the Grand Ole Opry.
2: Yeah. It's... Um... I, I don't know what what uh, stories you've heard about how the the audience is treating him. I, I mean, I know that some of those L.A. punk rock you know audiences were were not very nice to you know. They would beat up artists sometimes. they get in fights. And I, do you have any stories of how he how he dealt with those well, crowds? Yeah, I
0: think there was some, I think there was some of that, but I think it depended on the. Uh, you know it depended on the audience uh at the time on the club and depended on the night uh and you know I mean early on in punk, there was a lot more left you know i mean punk punk was all about breaking all the rules at mm-hmm. the start mm-hmm. uh and punk very quickly became this almost fascist rule bound sort of music where you had to look like this and you had to sound like this and you had to play this fast and you had to do whatever or else you wouldn't be authentically punk. And, and, you know, and and that to me is not very punk rock. But, uh, yeah you know, there was a, it was funny because at the time that I was working on the last stages of the book, uh Bob Mould was coming out with his book, which I reviewed, and, and he talked about having Dwight on tour with him early on, uh, with Husker and, mm-hmm. uh, and,
3: uh, and
0: how the Husker crowd would shout at him, play faster. <laughs> and Bob said, so Dwight would play faster, <laughs> you <Yeah.
3: laughs>
0: know. But yeah, but I, that- I mean, uh, Dwight has not. yeah, you know, Dwight has nothing but good things. To say about the reception he received in in Los Angeles, uh, you know those people, you know they they got him, you know early press. They got him, you know they they started a buzz around him, and not only around him. I mean, this was also a time when when there was there was kind of a resurgence of that kind of music. I mean, you had. You had loan justice, uh, you had rank and file, uh, you had you know, you kind of had what was what was starting to be known as cowpunk.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Although everybody who's, you know, remotely associated with it says that Dwight Dwight was never cow punk. Cow punk was like we were talking about earlier where, you know, you you have this disdain for polish or whatever and mm-hmm. You take the stage late in uh you know, wearing whatever you rolled out of bed in and you don't rehearse and this and that and uh and that was never Dwight's way. I mean, Dwight put on a show and his bands were well rehearsed and they dressed up for the show. You know, that that was from the start because Dwight you know, Dwight didn't have any interest in being some punk rock cold hand. Yeah.
2: So, uh, if not, if nothing else, um, those demanding crowds taught him how to, you know, entertain, I'm sure. And he paid oh, yeah, his
0: well, dues. And he, I can't, I, I, i teaching him how to entertain is probably an overstatement because I think he was a natural entertainer. I mean, his, his family says he was a hand from the start. Uh, so that was recognized. But, yeah, it definitely, you know, he was able, through those shows to really get a sense of how to piece these, how to piece a set, how to make a song work, what worked, what didn't, all of that, you know, well before going into the recording studio. So, so like Peter Anderson said, by the time they finally signed with Warner's and got a, uh, you know, and started recording albums, they had three albums worth of material that they thought were good uh you know right then it wasn't
2: you know just complaining all that time so that, that that's a nice transition don thanks why don't you uh, he, uh pete makes uh an early demo in
0: 1981
2: uh and then uh a well, few pete years did not make the demo dwight. i'm not Pete. i'm sorry dwight yes um and he 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 meets Pete at some point, and so so take us through that. Take us up to his, up to his meeting with Pete and and getting on a, a, a signing a contract with a, with, with Warner's.
0: Okay, uh, there were there was kind of a community of people who were hanging around the Calamino. Um, and you know fashion musicians and engineers and you know, all those sorts of folks, uh, who could tell that Dwight had something. So the idea was that uh that they they would cut a demo during off hours kind of to pitch Dwight's songs, you know, it it you know, material to bigger artists. Uh and so Dwight cut a, cut a demo, uh, and they, uh, yeah, and, and they took the demo to Nashville and, yeah, nobody was really interested in the songs, nobody was much interested in, uh, you know, in Dwight as a singer. He really, he didn't sound like what was happening in company music at that time. Uh, and, uh, and so it was, uh, you know, it, it just seemed like kind of a wasted effort or whatever. But one of the people who ended up hearing the demo as it was circulating was Pete Anderson. And Pete's about 10 years older than Dwight. uh He had more experience in recording studios. He would worked with bands as an arranger and all that sort of stuff. And... Listening to the tape, he was just floored by how good the singer and the songs were. And he made it a point to come to light and say, you know, if you're interested, I really think there's, you know, that, that we could have something here. And, and it was Keith who introduced kind of the Buck Owens template of having the guitar be like a second voice in this, mm-hmm. because in the original, you know, the arrangements on the demo, uh, it sounds, you know, it almost sounds bluegrassy, like a bunch mm-hmm. of musicians chasing each other, you know, no, no nothing really dominant. Uh, and once Pete got together with Dwight, uh, Pete understood how to arrange these songs to really bring an edge to them. And, you know, to have intros and outros and breaks and you know, how to edit them down, how they have a real rhythm section and uh and so, you know, it's at a certain point it becomes you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to over credit peak with joint success because it isn't it isn't like Peak, you know, and it had a stringus Success on his own, uh, and to my mind, under the mind of a lot of people, neither Pete nor Dwight has done anything as interesting since they've split uh, as they did together. Although I will say I really like Dwight's new album a lot, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it's uh, and that was you know released after the book, but uh, but my sense is that the biggest break that. Each of them got was meeting the other, and somehow recognizing that they had something great going together, and that they would stick to that no matter you know what other people told them to do. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: and, that, uh, ha- and that led to that led to the release of the you know an EP on a uh, small label that, you know, that that EP on Oak Records, I think was limited to like 5,000 pressings. One of them got to Jack Hurst, who was at that point the only syndicated country music columnist. He ran the um, Chicago Tribune. He was based in Nashville. And Jack Hurst wrote a rave about this EP, Mm -hmm. uh, bringing White to the attention of warner
3: brothers
0: and uh and warner brothers you know everybody at that time was searching for like the next big, big thing because it was obvious that the urban cowboy thing had become a joke and a cliche and it wasn't selling anything anymore so you know edgar was yet to be on the horizon so there were all sorts of ideas you know what what is it gonna be? You know, or is it, is it going to be, uh, you know, Austin style music? Is it going to be folkish? Is it going to be,
3: you
0: know, pop? What, what's it going to be? And so, so they were willing to take a flyer like on Dwight. Uh, maybe ten years earlier, ten years later, they might not. Mm-hmm. The music business does it, you know, it, the best time for music fans is when the music business really has no idea what it's doing. Uh when it's flailing about for new ideas, because mm-hmm. when the music business has something that thinks works, it will continue to try to duplicate that and duplicate that and duplicate it uh, mm-hmm. until it you know just becomes a cliche mhm
2: um, uh, so they re-release on warner's his his that earlier e p right
0: well, what, yeah, they they actually added to it. The e- what had been an EP, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd have to look back on it, but I think it might have been a six-song EP, and them being ten songs on Warner's or something like that. But uh-huh. yeah, they they recorded some more songs, used the same cover, only colorized it, uh, you know, and and a lot of this would be, you no, know, I mean, this was actually fairly radical. Because a lot of times, when, you know, if somebody would sign an artist like that on the basis of an EP and they wanted to make a major label release on it, it mm-hmm. benefits you go into a Nashville studio with Nashville musicians and a Nashville producer and, you know, redo the thing. Um, mm-hmm. Warner Brothers, you know, pretty much left what Dwight had done stand. Uh, you know, even Tim McGraw, I mean, somebody who was selling moldy platinum had to fight, you know, it, it took him three or four albums before he could get to the point of using his own musicians in the studio. Uh, Dwight, from the start, always recorded with his, with his touring band. So, you know, it was a whole different thing.
2: At what point... Um does he become a commercial success? Right away, I mean, not right away. Uh,
0: Almost, almost
2: instantaneously.
0: Uh, and he started out, he started out his tour, uh, you know, he was still playing with the likes of Bob Malone. He played uh, with the Blasters. You know, he was doing a lot of things, supporting, uh, you know, punk rock bands. Uh, but, with the release of the album in 1986, I mean, he started getting for airplane uh, for a honky-tonk man. Uh, oh. And another really important thing that happened around that time is you had the rise of video. And so, you know, even though country radio had this stranglehold, CMT was breaking a lot of newer artists and particularly somebody who was as videogenic as Dwight. I mean, there just became a demand for the sort of excitement that he was generating. Uh you, you know, very visual artist. And so that uh, you were you were able to do things quicker at that point than you might have been earlier, where you had to build an audience by playing on um, the same fans might take you two years to reach uh, playing the hockey Uh You can reach, you know, in a month of power rotations for video. So, so, so Dwight left Los Angeles as a, uh, you know, as, as a punk rock and opening act, and he returned from a year of touring uh, as a uh, mainstream country star.
2: MTV liked him too, didn't they? Well yeah, they did. Yeah. Okay. I mean it's, it's, yeah, I mean he uh, you know, he,
0: he was the one country artist that a lot of people who didn't consider themselves country fans, uh, embraced. Uh, and that's also you know, the, this is something that kind of figures in the book or figures in my writing the book and it jumps ahead in the story, but the... But when Dwight released This Time, which was his most commercially successful album, uh, Rolling Stone commissioned me to do the lead review on that album. And at that time, the, the lead review of Rolling Stone was a big deal. Uh, you know, Rolling Stone barely covered country music at that point. Mm-hmm. And so to it, to to stop someone like Dwight Yoko to give him that yeah, space for the 750,000 word review was just, the uh, was amazing. And this was before, you know, Rolling Stone would start chasing the emerging country market with Garth Brooks covers and stuff like that. You know, I mean, this was, this was rude. So yeah, Dwight, Dwight all along, if you, if you go to a Dwight concert, you would get a good portion of the crowd that self-identified as country music fans and only went to country music concerts, that you would get a real, sizable group who otherwise didn't like country music, who never listened to country radio, who never went to country concerts, but who really liked Mike. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was was unheard of for somebody who was getting mainstream country airplay.
2: And his... Uh, his band with, with, you, t- you already mentioned that he recorded with his touring band, and with Pete Anderson and others in his band, they, they were a pretty darn good live act, correct? Oh, they're terrific. Uh,
0: uh-huh. you know, it's, uh, people who saw them early on at the Palomino said that even then you could envision them playing the large stage. Uh, uh-huh and and yeah, I mean it, you know they, they knew they knew how to make it work, and it didn't make any difference whether it was a small club or whether it was a medium sized club like the Vic where I first saw, which you know maybe seven hundred and fifty thousand people uh there the Chicago theater, you know which holds you know maybe three times that many, and I Buck Holmes was on you know a special guest event at that point uh, yeah, it was always it was always a great. A great live band that obviously could recreate the you know the album arrangements because they were the ones who had recorded it, but who always brought a, a, an extra special dynamism to the live performance. It was right. re- yeah, it was always a rock show. You know, it, it, it was it was country roots, but they had the energy of the rock show.
2: Uh-huh. And they were they were sterling musicians as well.
0: They were what? I'm oh,
2: sorry. Sterling musicians. They could play.
0: Sterling, yes. Oh, yeah. They could play. Yeah. All of them could play. Um uh, and, uh, and, yeah. And, and, and there was, you know, there was some upheaval. There were, you know, people coming and going. And, uh, you know, but, but Pete really knew how to, he, he was a real bad leader. I mean, he really knew how to make that work, and he really knew how to support the musicians and support the singer and the songs without hope staging the singer
3: mm-hmm. and the song. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I guess we'd be remiss if, we, if, if I didn't ask you to talk about uh, Dwight's relationship with uh, Buck Owens.
0: Yeah, it's the funny thing, because... Early on, I mean, Dwight
2: is so much associated
0: with Buck Owens, and in the same way that, say, A Sweet the Wheel is with Bob Wills. Uh, before Dwight went to Los Angeles, I don't think Buck Owens was really on his radar. Uh, and even when he recorded the first album, uh, you know, it's, it's more Johnny Horton you know, would the, the original hockey talk man. Uh, Johnny Horton, Johnny Cash. These are people who you know, and and as he explained to me, the you know, the the beacons of inspiration before going out there were I Emil mean, Harris and John Cogerty. So it wasn't like it wasn't like Dwight was really making this connection with Bakersfield. However, Keith understood that Bakersfield was where this real Guitar twangs sort where of the country music was coming from. Uh, and so it was Bakersfield who provided the template for uh, for Keith to be involved. Uh, and then by the time of the second album, uh, like, well, you know, the, the song Little Ways, which was, which, you know, really sounded like a buckle Owens cover. I mean, it was like he had really shifted toward. You know, having Buck be a major influence. Uh, And, and, you know, and then, uh, you know, it wasn't long after that that he was bringing Buck out of, uh, third album, bringing Buck out of semi-retirement for the streets of Bakersfield. Putting Buck back on the country charts. And Mm -hmm. from then on in, Buck, who was, you know, Bill was a notoriously difficult man and an extremely shrewd businessman. Buck very much adopted uh Dwight as a surrogate son, at least a surrogate artistic son. Uh and Dwight, you know, ended up you know, Buck became like, you know, the biggest star in his constellation. But I'd say that was two or three albums in. Yeah. That wasn't from the start.
3: Mhm.
2: So you've already mentioned this record, but you seem to make the argument that, kind of, uh, thus far in his career anyway, uh, Dwight's apex, both commercially and artistically, is with the album This Time. Um, Tell 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 us about that record and and why you think this about it.
0: Well, the the first three albums were, like I said before, those were albums that were stage-tested, where all of the material had been stuff that Dwight had been recording for, you know, playing for years. Uh, And so it was was all ready to go. Uh, With the fourth album, uh, if there was a way, which I see as kind of a transitional album, uh... Dwight, you know, he no longer had that big bag of songs that he had from the start. So he, so he did some, so he did some co-writes, cool uh, good co-writes cool with Roger Miller and Costas, is a big uh, country songwriter. Uh, and and then I mean, it holds up, but it's you know, it's I think when people think of the early Dwight, it's really those first three, Uh you know, and then this time. Was the longest time between albums he released? Uh, you know, Dwight. Dwight at the start was pretty much releasing an album a year, album every year and a half. There were three years between if there was a way and this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my mind, this time is the first album that Dwight, cons- you know, really that Dwight and Pete really conceived of as a studio creation. Uh, so, so the, there were elaborate arrangements, they were stretching, you know, they were certainly stretching beyond the honky-talk. Uh, they were, they were experimenting, uh, and for whatever reasons, uh, the time was right for that kind of, uh, you know, for, for what Light was doing then. I mean, country radio responded, the audiences responded, uh, the song Thousand Miles from Nowhere uh, you know which uh, which gives the book its title from this time you know just it was a huge hit and it was like nothing that Dwight had previously recorded uh, it's it's, you know, more like a Chris Isaac, almost like a Ricky Nelson song. Uh, and it's got this, this long guitar coda uh, after these strings and lush arrangement, uh, a guitar coda uh, that, uh, that Pete, uh, you know, says that he pretty much cops from Layla. You know, he, he was, he was channeling Derek and the Dominoes then. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a big hit. There were, you know, there were just there were a ton of big hits from the album. It was obvious who that he was a guy who had scaled another creative peak. You know that, that he was no longer being tied to any sort of anachronistic version of honky tonk. You know he wasn't a throwback. And I mean, you know this this was somebody who was who was crossing borders, uh, you know, who was looking to the future, who was looking beyond country music, but who was still finding commercial favor with country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, you know, and I, mean, and I think it took a lot of people by surprise because it, uh, you know, it, it, people weren't, just weren't ready for that sort of growth out of Dwight. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that's the album that really established him. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was his biggest solo album, I think, is you know, the, the album that, that certified his stardom.
2: <laughs> and, and and what year did that come out? It was the early it 90s, It came out in right? 1993. 93. Now, uh I hate to make it sound like we're starting to wrap up this interview, but because uh, there's a lot of career left for him after this. Um yes, now, obviously, he still has a career. But uh, when when does he his records? It's not too long after this that they they the sales start slipping, right?
0: Right after that, and not slipping, plummeting, plummeting uh, oh, <laughs> with, with
2: with gone,
0: uh, and gone is you know, to my mind, gone you know that's, that's the heart of the book and it's the heart of uh it's the heart of Blight's artistry. There are many of us, uh, and including some who work on the record, who think The Golan is the best album that Blight ever made. Uh he's he's definitely taking even more chances. It's like if he was pushing the envelope on this time, he's tearing it wide open with Gone. Uh Introducing a Hammond organ, uh, you know, doing things that could sound like uh, gospel blues, uh, doing, you know, just, just taking all sorts of production chances, taking chances with the material, uh, whatever uh it got great reviews uh this time you know if if this time other than believe you know it wasn't like white was getting a whole lot of mainstream press with this time because like i say he snuck up on people the class was ready for long it was the you know because this time had been such a big hit everybody was you know was lining up to be big Dwight stories in conjunction with Gone. So he got he got the most press of his career, probably got the most pro positive press of his career. Uh spent, you know, more time and money on Gone than any you know, than the previous albums. Uh took more chances on it. Uh, and he sold about a tenth of what uh this time had had sold. Um, uh, you know. That's what if there's something I, I don't have the. And and immediately, you know, I mean, and and this is where the book gets really interesting because it's like, I mean, the book's really interesting throughout. Obviously, <laughs> this, is, this is where the story to me gets really interesting because when so, you know, when you're on a career ascent. Everybody is playing on the same team and everybody is each other's biggest fan and et cetera, et cetera, and everybody's encouraging risks and chances and all that. Uh, and then you have something that's as big a failure commercially as Gone was, and the fingers are pointed Uh Pete Anderson insists, you know, that, that it was the record company's fault, that that he and Dwight delivered a terrific album, and you know, like I say, everybody involved with the album, nobody makes any apologies for it. Nobody says, oh, that was a mistake, you know, what a disaster. Uh, they they delivered a great album, and for whatever reason, Warner Brothers dropped the ball that Warner Brothers couldn't, uh, you know, or wouldn't promote it. Uh, people, they say people didn't even know the album was out. Uh, I don't know why Warner Brothers would want to torpedo one of its artists unless it was this idea that here's a guy who's getting too big for his britches, who thinks he doesn't need Nashville, who thinks he's outgrown country music, whatever. Uh, Warner Brothers says that... Uh, you know, that, that basically they can't force music down radio's throats. And, and at that time, and really still, radio m- remains a huge force in deciding what is going to be popular uh, with country fans and what isn't. Uh, and in rock, you've got all these different formats. You've got alternative, you've got classic rock, you've got album rock, you've got whatever. uh. Country radio has always been, you know, like the equivalent of top forty, only really with power rotation, it's more like a top ten or fifteen. So if you're not if you're not in that mix, if you're not getting added, a lot of people don't know you exist. Uh, and so, you know, to, from Warner Brothers standpoint, uh, Dwight and deep and whoever just misfired, they miscalculated uh what the, uh, what the market was and how much they could get away with. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they stepped too far over the bounds. Uh, mm-hmm. so whether this is a label trying to punish an artist, whether this is an artist who's receiving insufficient label support, or maybe this is just the natural, uh, rise and fall of a career, because I got a real good one. Uh, you know, and it's, like you say, continued. To have a real good run, make really good music, and enjoy a, you know, a popular following, a very devoted popular following. Mm -hmm. But he he hasn't been the radio mainstay since this time that he was up till then.
2: so so we are running out of time, so let's, uh, I mean, he does quite a bit, and you're you right about it. I mean, he, he goes, he leaves Warners, he puts out a record or two with New West, an independent label. Uh, well, he had a, he
0: had a different uh, indie, indie contract before then. Uh, I think that Dwight didn't understand how, you know, if he was going to be a country artist, how much he needed, uh, you know, a, a label with a national country presence.
2: I'm wondering how much to to this day, though, he still kind of remembers those punk rock roots and the do-it-yourself roots. And, you know, you don't have to have the major label. You can still, especially today, right, you can still do it on your own.
0: Well, you can. And actually, that's one of the reasons why Dwight took so long before uh, releasing this latest album. they were exploring lots of different options, and they were talking to different labels he was you know he was talking when I interviewed him he was talking about the idea of maybe you know maybe the album the the album was gone. maybe he would just release cuts you know for downloading because mm-hmm. uh, he's always had a lot of music but yeah I mean the uh, the industry has changed so much, but ultimately what happened is that the guy who ran new West later subsequently went to work for Warner Brothers and, you know, somehow shepherded Dwight back into the Warner Brothers fold. And it just made, you know, it made sense for Dwight to be back with Warner Brothers. It was a whole new cast of characters there. And since Warner Brothers has the whole catalog, as you know, all those previous albums, uh, they can promote him as a, you know, if it's, it's Yes, yeah, to everyone's benefit for going to do well, uh, that gives new stuff can help sell the old stuff, you know, all that sort of thing. So going back on Warner's and, you know, all of this happened, I mean, there were hints of it happening, you know, when I was working on the book, uh, but, uh, you know, everything was tied up and the album was recorded, uh, released after the book,
2: so. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, Don what can what can we what do we learn from Dwight's story well, that, that's I, my academic question for you
0: okay well it depends on you know who who we are i think if, I think if we are an artist, we take terrific encouragement and inspiration from the fact that he was a guy who stuck to his guns, who uh you know, didn't compromise, didn't play by the rules everybody said that you needed to play by and who won the game. Uh, who made history? Uh, I think if, uh, you know, if, if we are people approaching this from the outside, we take a long, hard look at authenticity and what it means, uh, what it means in the career of light. Uh, and we we certainly become more suspicious of the whole idea of commercialism being a dirty word. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, I mean, popular music strives to be popular. Dwight is a popular musician. Uh, and I think ultimately what any of us learn is that Dwight, for all the success he's had, uh, remains underrated as a singer, as a songwriter, and as, you know, a, a, a significant artist. Someone who, you know, for, for a very brief time, uh, made an amazing impact on country music.
2: And maybe he still will, huh?
0: Well, maybe he still will, yeah. I mean, his his new album is, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's a terrific creative achievement. It sounds like no album that he has made before, and it sounds just like life.
2: Fabulous. And, and um, what are you up to, Don? I know you're teaching, but are, are in, I think you told me you're in the, in the middle of finals this week, maybe. Um, I'm well and ready to start a summer semester. I actually coordinate a, uh, a master's
0: program in what is called strategic communication, which uh-huh. is all sorts of different... Uh, types of non-journalistic uh, communication, you know, public affairs, mm-hmm. uh, fundraising, uh, health communication, different things like that. So I'm, I'm deep the academia. I have to, you know, decide, you know, I'm not going to get another writing project done on the uh, front burner pretty soon. So mm-hmm. as soon as I get my head off the grading papers, I may start uh, thinking about that.
2: Fabulous. Well, um, I, we didn't get to a lot of your book, and I hope the people who listen will actually read the book and and, and get to what we didn't get to. But um, thank you for being on New Books and Popular Music, Don.
0: Well, thanks for all the great questions. And again, I really appreciate it.
2: Okay. Well, uh, you have you have a, a good time. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to a conversation with Don McLeese about his book, White Yoga, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere, published by the University of Texas Press in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.